is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. world what a life what a day saturday december 19 merry christmas the end of the year for us 2020 today is a special show the next two weeks also special but you've heard it before my troubadour we are going to put his music back to back to back and we will have a couple of albums it started with fourth of july That's our launch of this Island of Independence show. Independence Day, that was the first song, the 4th of July by Dave Gunders. Today, we finish out the year with his Merry Christmas song called When the Lion Lays Down with the Lamb. Oh, it's a beauty, and it's got a great story behind it. This show has a great story behind it. The Garnett, Stan Garnett who I had the privilege of working with in the Denver DA's office. I was his chief deputy for a little while. He went on to great things in the Boulder DA's office, where he served several terms. He was on the Boulder School District before that. And now he's a great private lawyer. He's been involved in national controversies like Jean Benet, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. He represented Debbie Ramirez, one of Kavanaugh's accusers. Wow, we talk about that. But before we get to Stan, who is my number three hitter in a powerhouse lineup, we talked to his son, Alec Garnett. Yes, a father and son show. Alec Garnett, speaker-designate of the Colorado House. What does that mean? It's a big deal for this Denver legislator who grew up in Boulder with Stan and Brenda Garnett and his brother, Andrew. What a success story. What a future is ahead of Alec Garnett. You can see why his peers think so highly of him. For one thing, he's tall, a power forward at Boulder Fairview. We talk sports. We talk sports wagering. He set up Colorado's legislative structure, and it's a beauty. This guy's got competence. Government competence? Yes, it can go together. One of the watchdogs through the years Lynn Bartles with the Rocky Mountain News, then the Denver Post. Now she's with Colorado Politics. She served a stint in the Secretary of State's office with Wayne Williams. Now she speaks her mind. What an interview. The neat thing about my show is you can jump around, look at the program label. We give you the exact times everybody hits. Because after I do the Garnett family quiz with Alec Garnett, There is suspense. How will his father do on the similar test? You can skip ahead if you want. Do it in whatever order pleases you. For you, I wish a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Thank you. Here's Alec Garnett. Gosh, it's a pleasure to welcome our next guest. I've known him since he was a little kid. His name is Alec Garnett, and he's going to be the Speaker of the Colorado House. 
Welcome, Alec. Congratulations on your big new job. Thanks, Craig. It's an honor to be on. I look forward to our conversation, and thanks for all the kind words. I'm excited. It's already been a lot of work. Someone actually just said to me, you're almost the future former speaker. And so what that reminded me of is you got to enjoy every single day that you have the opportunity to serve your community. That reminded me of Andrew Romanoff. But he was a great speaker and a frequent guest of mine on my broadcast. And now you've been on many times. You got elected in Denver, my hometown. I always find it fascinating. Your old man, Stan Garnett, is coming up. You grew up in Boulder, Boulder legends, but you moved to my hometown, Denver. I've spent some time in Boulder. Love it up there. But tell everybody a little about your upbringing and why you chose to be a Denver guy. Yeah, we are fourth-generation Coloradans. You know, my dad's mom was a farmer, and my dad's grandpa was a miner, and they moved to Boulder for the university. You know, Boulder's a great place. I went to Fairview High School. I ended up leaving Colorado to go to undergrad in Ohio, but I came back for grad school. I spent some time with Congressman Ed Perlmutter in Washington on his legislative team. I was his financial services committee staffer when the markets were going up and down during the financial crisis of 2008 and 9 and 10, and came back to Colorado with my wife, and we settled in Denver because it was better for our jobs. And to be honest with you, the Boulder politics are even a little crazy for me. And so wanted to be in Denver. House District 2, the district that I represent, is the youngest House District based on average age of voter in the state. And so a lot of the issues that we face and we have faced over the six plus years that I've served this district are the issues that a lot of my constituents face, whether or not it's rising childcare costs, transportation, congestion, concerns about the climate, all of these things that Emily, my wife, and I worry about are, are a lot of the same concerns I hear when I knock the door and I talk to my neighbors at the grocery store pre-mask period. The last basketball game I ever played was for the Consolation Championship at the 1974 State Tournament at the Coliseum was against Boulder Fairview. They had a power forward named Jeff Napple, who went on to quarterback a little bit for the Broncos. Do you even remember stuff like that, or is that like ancient history? Have you ever heard of Jeff Napple before? I have not. I have not. Gosh, he went to your high school and he played for the Broncos. You should know that. I should know that. I should know that. I remember all my high school battles in tennis and in basketball. It's funny. I'm still very close friends with many people that I went to high school with, which I don't know if that's unique or not, but it's something that I really cherish. You are a tall guy. Tell us about your hoop career. Yeah, I'm 6'5". I don't have many hops. I can't jump very high, but I'm a pretty athletic guy. I played from essentially eight years old on, got to the high school level, started on the varsity basketball team for Fairview. We were good. It was right around the time that Monarch opened up, and Monarch pulled some talent out of Fairview and some talent out of Boulder High and kind of balanced out the basketball talent among the three schools. So Billy Feeney, who was a dear friend of mine, he was sort of the the all-star on the Fairview squad. He went to Monarch. So the battles were tight amongst the three schools. We ended up going to the state tournament a couple times, but not making it past the round of 16 any of the times that I was there. 
but it's the best shape I've probably ever been in in my life. I was probably a better tennis player. I went on to play Division three tennis, and I played two singles and one doubles for the College of Worcester in Ohio, and I wasn't good enough even at D3 to play on their basketball team, which was actually a D3 national powerhouse, but ended up, you know, playing a little bit of college sports, which was a great way of traveling around and meeting friends. I know all about that. I did not know about your athletic prowess. You bring to mind my college basketball teammate at Colorado College Division Three basketball, Dave Adams, who was a stellar tennis player as well, and went on to coach Cheyenne Mountain to countless state titles in tennis. Have you ever heard of Dave Adams? I haven't, but I know of Cheyenne Mountain's success for sure. Now, they were 4A, right? Right. They were a step below, and so they always won it. They dominated 4A. They dominated us one year. We played them my freshman year at Fairview in tennis, and they dominated us that year. We continued to get better over time. And by the time I was a senior, Chad Suda, who is currently the Fairview tennis coach and has coached them to a state championship, was our number one singles player and won state championship in number one singles that year. So we ended up coming in second or third in state. We were always right behind Cherry Creek and Regis in my final two years. Regis knocked us out back in the day when we were ranked number one when I was a junior. That was disappointing at the Coliseum. But the next year we overachieved with me being a senior. But this isn't about me. It's about you. And by the way, Cherry Creek, bring them up. Back then, we always thought that Cherry Creek kids were rich and spoiled. and now. My son goes there, and I realize I was right. I was right all along. So, <laughs> anyway, it's still a great school system. Great school system. But they could never really hang with us in basketball. Football, that's another story. But you and I were smart enough not to play football. Now that I know you have lightning like reactions, I'm going to give you the Garnett family quiz before we go back to anything serious. Are you ready? Oh, man, I'm ready. Because I'm going to ask your dad these very same questions, and I need your pledge to keep this quiet until I get a chance to ask him, okay? You have my pledge. All right. First, it's about sports. What is your father's best sport? Tennis. Okay. Well, maybe like bike ride. Like, I guess I guess this is a hard question for Stan. And so I think... Okay, go I ahead. think... I guess it, it, it depends on... If we need to frame it for like a period of time in his life, no, no, or just, just yeah, overall, it's too deep. This is flash reaction. When you think of your dad, you think he'll say tennis. Tennis. Okay. Now tennis. this is about you, and I expect quicker answers. And you might predict what your dad will say, however you want to play it. But in your basketball career for Fairview, I'm sure your dad came to the games, right? He did. Was your dad a disruptive fan or a polite fan? Very polite. That's because he's a politician. What would he say was your best move? Uh, The uh, post hook. Ooh, the full Kareem sky hook? No, no, like a half hook. The baby hook. Half hook. Okay, the baby hook. In the post, baby hook. That's tough to cover. And then what was your best game ever? Best game ever was against Overland 2001. I'm a senior. 
scored 16 points, eight rebounds at Overland. Nice. He was there. He was there. We lost, actually. Oh. We lost. He was there. He will not remember that, but he was there. Was it a close game? It was a close game. Yeah, we ended up losing by, I think, four. And I, it was one of those games where, you know, I just didn't – I. it wasn't pretty, but I wasn't missing. So Nice. Okay, now this is Christmas stuff in the Garnett family. What is the favorite food, consensus choice in the Garnett family? Mashed potatoes. Is there an assigned seating order at your table? Yes. And can you describe it quickly? The assigned seating, growing up, it was me, Dan on my right, my brother on my left, and my mom across from me. And it was always the same for every meal. And you as brother, what's your brother's name again? He's Andrew. He's three years younger than I am. And he's a lawyer, right? He is a lawyer. And did you have assigned seats as the brothers? Yes. And mine was, yes, mine, we were always in the same spot. When was the correct time to open gifts in the Garnett family Christmas? After everyone got up, we could open up the stockings before mom and dad were awake, but we couldn't open up any presents until they were awake. So depending on what time we came downstairs, you could open up your stocking, put together whatever little transformer or trinket or eat the orange. There was always an orange in the stocking. Now there are scratch tickets actually in the stocking once we became of age. But then you would wait. My dad would brew up some coffee. And then once everyone was ready and sitting in the living room, you would start to open up gifts. Wait a second. He was feeding you guys coffee or was that just for him to wake up? He fed me my first cup of coffee when I was like 12. It was pretty, he, he got me, he got me hooked on caffeine early. And you remain hooked to this day. We're going to bring that up, that coffee back at age 12. Okay. Yeah. I have it under control though. It's just like I have one Americano in the morning and that's pretty much it. At what time would Stan get up on Christmas? Probably between seven and eight. And were you impatient? How long were you and Andrew up already? We would probably already been up an hour or so. I think that was definitely the day that we got up the earliest. So we were always up. It felt like eternity before they got up. So I would say six o'clock-ish. And was there a big meal on Christmas? A bigger meal on Christmas Eve, actually. But yes, there was always sort of leftovers from Christmas Eve. Let's focus on the biggest meal, Christmas Eve. Who makes it? Mother Brenda? Mother Brenda, yeah. And what is she going to make? She's going to make a ham, scalloped potatoes, a vegetable, sometimes mashed potatoes because my brother didn't eat scalloped potatoes, so they would do both. She would make these like cinnamon rolls with mm. walnuts on top that were always really good. And yeah, that would, I think, pretty much round it out. All right. Who in the family was the fastest eater? Stan, for sure. Who was the biggest eater? Maybe me when I was younger and didn't kind of understand how overeating can then impact the next two or three hours of your life. So I would say me. And then I think I know the answer to this. The pickiest eater. Andrew? Definitely. 100%. How picky? I mean, would he get upset if something touched his food? I mean, scalloped potatoes. Yeah, a little bit. That seems kind of like a minor issue to me. But so did your mom have to do things special for him? And I like Andrew because I was like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He, and she would do anything he wanted. You know, for Thanksgiving, for example, his 
cranberry sauce couldn't be the one out of a can. It had to be more fresh and kind of like the like the chunkier cranberry sauce. Um, I, I'm so, so picky. I don't even want to see cranberries on the plate next to me. <laughs> That's right. Well, my five-year-old, I have two little kiddos, and my five-year-old, he is very much the same way, which is like he can't see it or smell it. I like him. What's his name? His name is Ashton. I think that's a sign of good discernment. <laughs> yeah, yes. I've grown up just fine without cranberries. <laughs> okay, and, and now the best cook in the house, Brenda? Yes, Brenda. Best baker, Brenda? Yes. Now, my wife is also an amazing baker and an amazing cook, and mm. so they are a good team. But growing up, uh, yeah, 100%. What's your wife's name? Emily. Emily the baker. Does she make that uh, walnut-covered cinnamon rolls? She does not make the walnut-covered cinnamon rolls, but she made a pumpkin pie this Thanksgiving, which we just had by ourselves, from scratch with actually real pumpkins. So she went and bought pumpkins and, like, dug them out, and it was the best pumpkin pie I've ever had. How much sugar do you add into that? Isn't that what makes I don't like pumpkin pie. I'm too picky for that, but I will eat pecan pie. Yeah, you know, Emily is very conscious of sugar and how much sugar is consumed, but not when it comes to her baking. So tons of sugar was added to the pumpkin pie, I think. Nice. All right, now here are some quick questions. This is for the Garnett family home. And I think you focused in, it's about when you're a sophomore at Fairview High School, right around there. And what TV channel is most likely going to be on? ESPN. And sometimes we would throw on The Simpsons around end of school, end of work time. And then where would you get your news? Local news. What channel? Nine. But, you know, my dad flipped around quite a bit. So he was always flipping from four to seven to nine in that 10 minute period, kind of getting a sense for what was in the first block of TV coverage, what stories were being covered. And does he record them all now, do you? I don't record them all now. I'm pretty good at going online and checking them out. He's taught himself Spanish, so he watches more Spanish television and Spanish news than anything else. And so I think he does tape a lot of that. Do you speak Spanish? I do not. Well, maybe he learned it to talk about you without you understanding. <laughs> that could be it. That could be it for sure. Did you watch late night shows? Did you have a preference? Kimmel, Colbert, Letterman? Leno. Yeah, my parents were big Letterman fans, and so I kind of inherited that and watched that a little bit with them. Since then, you know, Kimmel's great. I find myself watching more Netflix and Amazon series or late night sports if the kids are asleep and I have a few minutes to myself, which is rare and rarer to find. Favorite, and we're going back to your youth, favorite TV show. Yep. Is it The Simpsons or something else? Like 90210, maybe? Wow, that's quite yeah, an addition. I'll give you a chance to withdraw that answer, but I, I'm going to, if your dad gets that right, <laughs> that's going to be amazing. Is there a family movie? Whew. Um, no. I think if you were to ask him, he would say, we have like a lot of like actual family movies from old VCR tapes. No, that, no, I'm not talking about that. I know, I know. I don't think, I don't think there is a, family movie there's really. no movie that you would hey this is on let's all watch it <laughs> no it's a no. wonderful life uh, no. wizard of oz nothing okay 
Did you have I don't a, think so. Did you have a favorite radio show? Mm, no. What song do you think is the Garnett's favorite Christmas carol? Maybe you'd sing it in the house. Maybe you don't. Maybe you put it on the record player. Man, I, there's, I mean, like Jingle Bell Rock. Yeah. So but okay, I, I don't, we'll yeah. go with Jingle Bell go. Rock. That'll qualify. Yeah. What was the best pet ever in Garnett family history? Stella will be the pet that goes down in Garnett family history. She was our first English bulldog. She was, you know, made famous by, she would go to these like photo studios and like dress up. And she was on like three greeting cards that Papyrus put out. So she was like actually famous. Wow. That's a stellar choice. Yeah. Now, what was the best shared Garnett sports moment? And it's okay, even though you lost it. I got it. Go ahead. Well, the best sports memory collective that the family remembers going through together would be when CU beat Michigan. We were fly fishing below Spinney Mountain. We were fishing the Golden Mile, right? Or the, the Miracle Mile. That You know, that stretch right below Spinney Mountain Reservoir. We were getting ready outside of our old 1980-whatever Suburban, listening to it on the radio, and Cordell Stewart threw it to Westbrook. We all started screaming. All these other fly fisher people were getting ready or fishing right there, didn't really know what was happening. So we all remember that one. We always talk about that one. Classic. Yeah. In terms of family, Stan and I won the father-son doubles tournament at the Meadows Country Club in Boulder in, I don't know, two, like 1999 or 2000 or 2001, right in there when I was in high school. But we beat some of like these longtime club favorites, the Oblovies and the McConaughey's and all these people who had been dominating the tennis ladders forever. And Stan and I came in and just dominated. And it was definitely the best father-son performance in Garnet history. When you say dominated, what were the scores? Like 6-love, six 6-1, six or was there any tension in it, or were you guys just, you were just on it that day? On it that day, I think if you were putting odds against us, it would have been like plus 800 for us to win that tournament. We were underdogs, we would have been seated in double di digits, and we knocked off the one seed, the two seed, the three seed. We just, we tore them up. Some of the matches were close. But there was never a doubt. Where was that at again? The Meadows? Yeah, Meadows Country Club in, in Boulder. Where's that? I don't know Meadows Country Club in Boulder. It's off of 55th and Baseline. It's not really a country club. It's just kind of a swim and tennis club. Oh, okay. I was thinking a golf course. That's my orientation. No, yeah. No, that... That's right. No, that was no cool. And you segued into one of the things I want to talk to you about. How do you think your dad will do on that test? I bet you're curious to find out. <laughs> I am very curious. For oh, sure. He's going to get the same questions, but I want to talk to you about sports wagering because everybody likes to pitch a bitch against the government. They can't handle this or that. And Lord knows they're often right, especially right now on the federal level. But you guys brought Colorado sports wagering and I partake. You set it up. I had my doubts that it could be good, but I think it's great. It's fun. It's competitive. And by that, I mean, 
they compete against each other like uh, Kohl's competes with, I don't know, Target. They have discounts and special ways to save money. And I love it. Thank you for the way you set it up. Is it going as well as I think it is? Yeah, Craig, you're spot on. I just talked to Dan Harmon yesterday, who is uh, runs the Division of Gaming in the Department of Revenue, and we worked together on the implementation of the legislation. And he was saying that he has regulators coming in from like multiple states. He's had 12 visits over the last couple of months of people coming in and looking at the framework that we created and how we've executed it, because really when we were moving the legislation through the Capitol, what was clear to me was that the future of sports betting was going to be online. And there was a a lot of pressure from Arapahoe Park and from brick and mortar entities that wanted it not to be, have an online option and just to have ticket windows. Like you can imagine if you ever went over to the UK before they moved their system online, there would be ticket windows on like every corner and you'd go up and you'd buy your ticket there, similar to what you would do in Vegas. And I was like, listen, that's not where this market's going to go. This market's going to be online. It's going to be on your phone. And we have to figure out a way to create a marketplace that is big enough that it's competitive. Right now we have 16 online providers, but we also have to tie it to something so that you just don't have unregulated companies coming in and doing it. So we tied it all through casino licenses, There are 33 casino licenses in the state. And what we essentially said is if you have one of those licenses, then you can open up an in-person book in your casino if you want, and you can get a license to partner with somebody to create an online operator. And it has been, I think, very, very successful. Now, you see the revenue generated by the state kind of go up and down depending on which month it is in October the numbers were really high in terms of the amount of revenue generated by the state, but in September they were really low. And that's because we tax the casinos on their winnings, not on total dollars bet. And so that's one thing I've had to sort of explain to folks is if we are generating a lot of taxes, that means that Colorado betters are losing. And if we're not generating a lot of taxes, like in the month of September, that means- Alec, it's your dad on the line. Can I let him in? Yeah. All right. Let's let him in. Stan. Hey, Craig, how are you? Good. I'm talking with the most interesting guy. His name is Alec Garnett. Ever heard of him? I have heard of him. Yeah. Well, that's great. Good for him. Good for you. You are being recorded even as we speak. And let me bring you up to speed. You are about to undergo a test, a test that will tax all your abilities. So get ready for that. But in the meantime, Your son was bragging about his legislation that created a fabulous sports wagering environment for consumers like me. And just so I can talk about it, I partake. That and the fact that my dad taught me how to wager just about as early as you taught your son how to drink coffee. Yes, we know all about you now, Stan Garnett, but we're going to go back to Alec. And Alec, keep bragging about how this is working out, because even though it's great, I think it could be even better. Go ahead. Yeah, well, listen, and, and I, that's what I was talking to Dan Harmon about yesterday is some improvements that we could make to the system. But overall, what you have is a safe environment that has, I think, been a great competitor to the black market. What we did know 
was that Colorado sports enthusiasts were betting on the side, whether or not that was through a bookie or whether or not that was online through entities offshore. But there were problems with that, consumer protection problems. People would win, and they wouldn't get their winnings from the offshore entities for months. And then, some, you know, like a Visa gift card would show up in the mail. So what we've done is we've created a product that competes with the black market, has pulled people out of the black market into the legal regulated market. So that was our first goal, and I think it's worked out really well. I think that, you know, we put in a bunch of integrity tools to make sure that nobody was rigging the system or that to work with the leagues to make sure that there wasn't fraud that was taking place or systems set up to throw games or anything like that. So, so far that's worked out really well. And then again, the market's very competitive. So the consumer is the one who's being taken care of by all the promotions. For example, on Monday night, that safety that screwed over so many people uh, at the end of the game in the Ravens Cleveland game. That's me. Yeah. Most books had to refund that because if the book that you were using didn't refund a bad beat like that, what you're going to do is go to another book that did do that because the market's so competitive that as a consumer, you can pick and choose the place that treats you the best. Right. And they refunded it up to 50 bucks. I think it's what it was. And that's a good amount. And I thought it was goodwill on the part of DraftKings did it. FanDuel did it. I happened to have Cleveland plus three at Bet Fred. And I wrote to them. I said, hey, FanDuel and DraftKings are doing it. And they said, but we're not, which I thought was okay, because that too is competition. And I'll factor it in when I decide where to place my wagers. There are fabulous bonuses if you know how to take advantage of it. I wrote about it in my column in the Colorado Sun, but it really is a good consumer experience. And especially in this pandemic era, it's entertaining more than Netflix for me. So entertaining. I've had so many people write me and saying, you know, similar to what you led with, which is I never thought government could do anything good. But during this pandemic, I have really enjoyed the mental release that sports betting has provided as I stay at home and I can't socialize with my friends and loved ones. So I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback. Well, you should. Do you partake? Are you allowed to? Yeah. Yeah, no, I I partake low-level stuff. And what about your father? Do you think he partakes or do you know? He does not partake, but he will check in. My brother and I both do it. He will check in and, and kind of follow along. You know, the sport that I follow the most and bet on the most is golf, actually. And so it's a little bit of a harder one to follow just from like a fan perspective. But yes, yeah, yeah, my dad checks in on us all the time. Not for me. I've been on golf all the time. And if you think golf's boring, well, then start gambling on it. It won't be so boring. Right, Stan? <laughs> what are you waiting for? No, no that's true. I don't. The, my problem is I just don't understand all this stuff. So I'm more than happy to let the boys do it and uh, to live vicariously. And as Alec will tell you, my standard question is, Did you win any money this weekend? That's kind of what I want to know. Let me introduce you properly. This is Dan Garnett. We've known each other for so long, but I want to get your answers to a bunch of personal Garnett family questions because I have all the correct answers from your son, Alec. Okay, that's great. That's great. We're going back to a time, Stan Garnett. And when we're done with this, your son has to go. You know, he's a big shot. 
He's Speaker designate of the Colorado House. His time is limited. But you want to hear this, don't you, Alec? I want to listen to the very beginning and then I'll go. All right. Then you'll <laughs> hear the rest on the podcast. You know what? Here's what I'd rather do. And that's what your dad would rather do. You can hear it and enjoy it around Christmas. The podcast will drop Saturday morning. And I bet your father will have some different answers than you, but we shall find out. But I can't let you go without discussing the fact that you are probably the second most powerful person in Colorado. You are going to be determining the legislative agenda along with Jared Polis. What are your priorities? How are we going to get out of this mess? Yeah, it's a good question. The number one thing is we have to focus in on our economy and the people that have been so negatively hit by this economic downturn that was caused by this pandemic over the last 10 months. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not through this yet. You know, we had an economic forecast come out this morning that I'm still pouring over. You know, our economy going into this pandemic was very, very strong, and the fundamentals still remain strong. We just have to make sure we can get out of this quickly and then the legislature needs to make sure that we're making smart decisions to make that recovery and that transition as strong as possible. So I feel confident that both Democrats and Republicans are going to rally around these issues, but that's where I think our focus is going to be. You know, we just came out of a special session two weeks ago that was hugely bipartisan, where we pumped money into small businesses, people who were feeling housing insecurity, food insecurity, and into child care to make sure child care centers could stay open so that parents could continue to work. And that's the type of leadership that Coloradans expect us to do. That's the type of leadership that I've been very frustrated hasn't been there on the federal level. And so I hope that we have that same type of sentiment as we go into session in 2021. Do you worry about anti-vaxxers? They've come to the Capitol before. Is that a meaningful movement in Colorado? And are any Republicans encouraging that? There's a lot of Republicans who pay very close attention to the anti-vaxxer movement. I haven't heard of any states talking about mandating the vaccine. That certainly hasn't been part of any of the conversations that we've had. But we have been on the front lines of just talking about simple changes to the statutes around opting out of vaccines. So. It might become an issue, but I hope not. And I hope everyone knows and feels confident in this vaccine. We've had legislators who are on the front lines as ER nurses and as pediatricians already start taking it and try to do it publicly to reassure folks that they should take the vaccine when it's their time. So hopefully we keep moving forward. Colorado, our data looks good. Colorado's taking this seriously. Colorado's going to come out of this stronger than most of our neighboring states. Well, that's fantastic. I hope we can stay in touch. Best of luck. And my only other question about legalized sports wagering, since you are into it and I am, we're always looking for lower vigorous and mainly it's a dime line. Could that go lower? I mean, there are offshore providers who have a nickel line like Pinnacle Sports available to the UK. Is there anything in Colorado law that restricts FanDuel from making it Minus 105 each way on Bronco game with the Broncos, a six-point dog to Buffalo this Saturday? No, there's nothing in law that says they can't do that. And so I think as the market continues to mature and competition remains, you could see books starting to do that in order to get an edge. You know, I think the question will be, 
will there be consolidation in the market? I think the answer is yes. But as the kind of smaller and medium-sized guys try to compete with FanDuel, MGM, and DraftKings, they will, I think, continue to explore doing things like that. One thing I do want to point out that is very, very cool, PointsBet, headquartered here in Colorado and brought 300 jobs here. And there is a UK book that's going to open up their U.S. operations here in Colorado because of the strength of our marketplace. And so even the market to bet is strong, but it's also actually attracting companies and jobs to Colorado, which is also, I think, a cool thing. Way to go, Alec Garnett. You're a superstar. Do you think your dad understood any of that talk about biggerish or anything? <laughs> I, I don't, but that's that, what I tell people is that's okay. You know, that this isn't, it's not for everyone. It's for <laughs> basketball power forwards like you and me. Not <laughs> tennis right, superstars right, like Alec. Anyway, go about your day. Stan, you hang on. You're about to go into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. All right. That's great. We're going to take a commercial break. We'll be right back. See you, Dad. Yep. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. She is a fabulous guest. I've had her on many prior broadcasts. She writes for numerous outlets. She has filled her time in public service. Without further ado, Lynn Bartles. How are you, Lynn? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Tell everybody how you introduce yourself. I know you're from New Mexico. Am I right? Well, I'm originally from South Dakota. Oh, it shows what I know. Well, that's all right. My first job was in New Mexico, my first journalism job. And I worked there almost 13 years before coming to work for the late, great Rocky Mountain News in 1993. That was quite a time period, the summer of violence, as I recall, being in the Denver DA's office. Well, what was interesting is I had been the city columnist in New Mexico, and I had a lot of like heels and skirts and dresses. So the first couple months on the job, that's what I wore. But then when you're in a park, covering a homicide and the sprinklers have come on and your heels are sliding into the ground, I eventually switched to pants and tops and flat shoes. Good move. What part of South Dakota? Vermilion. It's where the University of South Dakota is. So it's probably one of the few Democratic hotspots in the very conservative state of South Dakota. More affiliated with Minneapolis or Denver? Oh, 
totally Minneapolis and Omaha. Mm. Like you are talking about Vikings, the Minnesota Vikings, whereas West River, that's what you, how you kind of divide them. You know, here you have Western Slope and Eastern Plains and the Front Range. In South Dakota, you have East River and West River. West River is more it's the Indian reservations, more of a Wyoming, Denver influence, a lot of Broncos fans. Rapid City. Oh, totally. Right. Rapid City is very Republican. Oh, so that's what you associate with Colorado and Wyoming, but not anymore. Yeah. When I first covered my first legislative session in 2000, I had to write so many corrections because I, if somebody was the majority leader, I would put after their name, comma, D, Colorado Springs, I mean, because I was not used to Republicans being in charge. Geez, I can't think of many Ds out of Colorado Springs. What was it? Mike Merrifield, right? Mike Merrifield, and you had John Morris. What a time. I went to Colorado College, and I told this story a couple of podcasts ago, but my first girlfriend was from Minneapolis. They were actually St. Paul, and her name was Nancy O'Malley. And she was for Hubert Humphrey, and I was for Frank Church. And then who won that primary? Well, I've never heard of Frank Church, so it has to be Hubert Humphrey. Jimmy Carter won that primary. Frank oh, Church, no. their church commission reforming the CIA. He was from Idaho. Anyway, I learned how to lose at love right there and then. And I go back a ways. I was a Democrat back then, and I have since been an independent for a long time. But you've been on quite a journey politically. Explain it. It's kind of South Dakota, New Mexico, Colorado. No wonder you keep going back and forth. Well, I have to say, when I moved to New Mexico and I asked, you know, and they asked, do you want to register to vote? And I said, what's the party breakdown? Oh, it's overwhelmingly Democrat. So I said, register me Republican. So I did. Then when I came to Colorado in 1993 and I registered to vote, I asked, what's the breakdown? And they said, a third, a third, a third. I'd never heard of unaffiliated before, but they said Republicans had the advantage. So I registered Democrat. And I stayed that way for a long time. Of course, I always laugh because I was a Democrat when I lived in Highlands Ranch, so there was nothing to do. And then I was Republican when I lived in North Denver. So, you know, North Denver, so Democrat. But there was a brief period of being unaffiliated in between, and I'm unaffiliated now. Have you ever been really politically active, participating in party politics or politics in general? I mean, we'll get to when you hooked up with Wayne Williams at the Secretary of State's office, but was that something that was kind of precluded by you being a journalist? One of my last assignments when I was working for the Denver Post before I left to work for Wayne Williams is I, Michael Bennett and Corey Gardner were traveling together on a farm tour of wheat farms and all this. It was pretty fascinating because here you have these guys, you know, it was wonderful. And we stopped in Yuma and we stopped at the farm implement that Corey Gardner's family knows. And I said, I've never been here. And Michael Bennett just ripped me a good one by saying, oh, really? You couldn't tell that from your writing, you know, because everybody said I, you know, was pro Corey when I was writing. And, of course, nobody said I was pro-Mark Udall in 2008 when I was writing about Udall and Schaefer. And probably the coverage had some of that same tone. But anyhow, even when I was registered Democrat or I was registered Republican, I, for example, I was a registered Democrat 
and this is not, I've said this before, and I didn't cover politics at the time, when I voted for Bill Owens in 1998. And I remember sitting at a table with dinner with a bunch of the Rocky women, and I said, well, something about having voted for Owens, and you could hear like the, just that drama on the table. What? You voted for Bill Owens. And, and you know, so it was, it was, you know, I've always kind of been back and forth on that. I mean, I voted for Bill Owens, but I also voted for Ken Salazar. So I like your independence. And it doesn't mean you're not opinionated because you are. You're one of the best opinion columnists out there. And before that, you were just an incredible reporter. Great sources. You still have them, but you have a fantastic writing style. It occurs to me that when you were the blogger for the Denver Post, what was it called? This Spot? You were way ahead of your time, weren't you? It was. It was. And, you know, I tell you, when I was still working for the Rocky, Mary Winter, who was the editor for the Capitol crew, told John Temple, Lynn should have her own column. She's got such a voice. And the whole thought just terrified John, you know. (laughs) But, yeah, it was interesting. And I loved it because it was called The Spot, very different than the one now. And I remember a new lawmaker said that his wife lived for it and that she would hit she'd sit at the computer and go oh all mad and he goes well there's nothing new on the spot you know but it was kind of easy to write that because we had a big crew right but it was snappy writing sort of a twitter style look at axios now those are good journalists but they put it out in kind of larry king style well i always thought the best was when the rocky had we called it roll call during the session and the stump for journey campaign and we put all these things in there and i always knew we had made it when somebody was trying to pitch me a story and i go that's not for the stump that's big enough that it should be a separate story and they're like no i want people to read it i mean the stump had wonderful one-liners and i remember one of them was i talked about how bill owens and his staff he did that you know he went around the state with his cabinet to talk to people and a small rural newspaper reported that owens would be traveling with his agricultural secretary donna mint m-i-n-t well of course the eggs are was don d-o-n a mint a-m-e-n-t donna mint so my headline was perhaps they stopped in trinidad first all right little operation yeah we had little fun ones that during the Feely Beaupre race for Congress, there was a thing of Bob keeps calling himself a dairy farmer. He's been a banker forever. How long can he keep that up? And I said, well, Feely always says he's a Marine. And they go, that's different. You know, once a Marine, always a Marine. And my headline was Semper Bovine. Well, I thought you were going for another joke. Semper Bovine is good. But how long could Bob keep that up? Till the cows come home. That's very good. You should have been co-writing with me. Bob and Claudia just celebrated their 50th. What a great couple. I love them. And you probably know this about me. I'm incredibly inappropriate. And I saw it next to Todd Hartman at the Rocky. And he, I didn't realize it, but he was writing down all these things I would say. So I'm on the phone. I'm interviewing Claudia because I'm doing kind of a potential first wife story. 
And she talked about those early years at the bank. It was kind of just them. They worked all these hours and they cleaned the bathrooms themselves and took just a half hour lunch break, you know. And I said, oh, come on, Claudia, you know, you took all those nooners. And, you know, there was no response on the other end. I went, oh, my gosh. And Todd was just dying that I had said that. I love Claudia and Bob. They're good people. See, you keep dropping names. Todd Hartman. I saw him on Twitter. I hadn't seen him in a while. Wasn't he the Robin and Batman and Robin at the Rocky? Well, who's Batman? I think it was Kevin Vaughn. Maybe I'm wrong. No, but that is so funny to describe him that way. You know, once Dan Kaplitz and I were invited over to explain how we had used public information documents to help us break the Ward Churchill story. Of course, the Rocky had a big part in that, John Temple, others. But it was fascinating. I may be wrong, but I think Todd Hartman was Robin. And it, that was so funny. Probably not Kevin Vaughn. Kevin, I'm sorry that I said that. Anyway. Well, it probably is. And that's really funny. Todd is one of the funniest people uh, you will ever know. He's great. He was the environmental reporter at the time. And speaking of good reporters using public information requests, how about Jesse Paul at the Colorado Sun, where, full disclosure, I'm columnist at large, he got Jenna Ellis unemployment records to show that what she told the Wall Street Journal wasn't really accurate about why Ken Buck had to let her go. Well, and kudos actually to the district attorney's office in Weld County for not pulling a lot of the games that are getting played around this state lately by government agencies. That's not a public record. Oh, it's going to cost you a fortune. Ben Marcus with Colorado Public Radio just did a wonderful expose on the Secretary of State's office under Jenna Griswold, and they initially wanted to charge him $5,000 for public records. And he called me because, you know, I had worked for Wayne, as you said, and he goes, do you recall charging these kind of rates? And I said, no, I think most of that stuff we would have given for free. We might charge if they had to run a special program. But for the most part, we were just very, here you go. I always thought it was, you know, public information. Yeah, but the government had a lot more money back then. So tough times. Let's get it on with Jenna and Jenna. Let's talk about Jenna Griswold. Let's talk about Jenna Ellis, because there was a hearing. I listened to part of it. You tweeted about it. Lynn is a hoot to follow on Twitter. And where you write your column, tell everybody about your column, Colorado Politics. I write a column for Colorado Politics, which is kind of like the political arm of the Colorado Springs Gazette. It appears in print on Saturday. You subscribe to it. And online on Tuesday. It's behind the paywall, the online version, for I think two weeks. And then it's out. But... Yeah, I mean, one is it kind of has kept me in the loop. What's a little frustrating is I always think, oh, my gosh, this takes so much time. But then it's it's fun to do and it's interesting and it just kind of keeps you a little in the action. I feel the same way. I do it every two weeks. How about you? I do it every week and that gets tough. I know. But you're tough and you had a great job with Wayne Williams. And then there was a blue wave. Jenna Griswold got elected. Did you sabotage the transition? I was so good during the transition that let me tell you what I did. 
I knew she was never going to keep me. She kept saying, oh, I'm not decided. I'm not decided. I'm not decided. And I knew she wasn't. But then it was a week before Christmas. And I said, well, maybe she's going to keep me on a month because nobody fires somebody the week before Christmas. She fired me the week before Christmas. And I could have gone on Twitter and said that. But I didn't. And when her new press person came in, I helped her out. I went over and showed her things and I gave her tips like, here's a good way to get press. Later, I became much more critical as things happened and the working relationship between Miss Griswold and the clerks broke down. I will say that Wayne Williams had to go to the airport for something recently and he said, how about if I pick up some takeout and we go and meet and have lunch? And when we met, I said, I am so angry at you, Wayne. And he said, what for? And I said, I didn't know you could change the results on Dominion. If you had done that, I'd still have that great job. I mean, and that tells you how ludicrous that hearing was. I know, but that wasn't Jenna Griswold's fault. I didn't say it was Jenna Griswold's fault. I know. Fault. So we have to clarify our Jenna's But If I'm reading it right, you scored Jenna Griswold. You're giving her a thumbs up or a thumbs down for her performance. I will give her a thumbs down to her performance. And I say that who's somebody who once wrote a column that said they gave her like the rising star on the Democratic Party. And I said, she deserved Democrat of the Year. They gave it to Jonah Goose, who had the easiest job in the 2018 election. Jonah Goose, how hard is it to win CD2, Congressional District 2, based in Boulder? Jenna, I mean, it turned into a wave. But when Jenna Griswold decided to take on Wayne, it was not looking like it would be an easy trick. A Republican hadn't been turned out in 61 years, that sort of thing. So I defended her and then until her relationships with the clerks deteriorated. But I'm not going to go into any more about Jenna. Let's move on. I got it. The thumbs down tells us that you're not a big fan. I wrote my last column about Jenna Ellis. I'm not a fan of hers. I'm not a fan of her client. And I don't think it's ethical what she's doing. I'm not saying she should be disbarred. Some people have represented that I wrote that. I I didn't know such thing. The headline was beautiful. Colorado lawyers should be better than Jenna Ellis. I'm really disgusted with what I call the big lie. And the big lie is Donald Trump perpetuating just the big lie that it was a rigged election. Are you upset about it? Am I going too far? Let's go back to 2016. All the polls showed that Hillary Clinton was winning. Trump visits Colorado like back to back, two appearances in Colorado in one weekend. And in both appearances, he claimed that elections are rigged. And when, I mean, I was interviewed and was all, all over, you know, all these newspapers across the country about how much crap that was. You know, I said it was insane that he would say that that they're rigged. But see, he thought he was going to lose. And then this time around, his mail ballot thing. You know, I have a a full, full disclosure. I have a contract with the Colorado County Clerks Association. And before the primary, I was having to help some clerks out. In small rural Colorado counties, that message that mail ballots were unsafe was taking hold and they needed help. Like, can you write something for us? And I pointed out that some counties in Colorado have been using mail ballots since 1993 because it was written into Tabor. 
written in a taper by conservative whatever he is, Douglas Bruce. I'm not sure the Republicans want to claim him, but conservatives sure do. The bottom line, Lynn, is you were there from the outset. You saw it all. Colorado's had a mail-in system. And part of the reason we had confidence in it is because Republicans like Wayne Williams and people like you and Democrats, they all vouched for it. And Cory Gardner got elected through it. Well, and let's even predate that. In essence, we already had a mail-in system. We just didn't call it that. Because in the early 90s, Colorado got rid of the, you have to have an excuse to vote absentee. You could just request your ballots be automatically sent to you. For example, in Jefferson County, 75% of the voters requested the ballots be automatically sent to them. We were a mail ballot state. And yes, Cory Gardner got elected, but look at where are the Republicans questioning? Remember when the big, was it Amendment 66, the big tax measure for education? That failed. Went down big time. Yeah. So did it really pass? Let's hold a legislative committee. Let's have the education committee call a bunch of people in and say that it really passed. I mean, I am disgusted with the Republicans who sat on that audit committee and knew it was a sham, but didn't feel they could say it was a sham. The same thing happened in the United States Congress with Ron Johnson calling the hearing. That's where they're taking it from. Well, it all comes from Donald Trump. And I think you're being too generous to the guy because I don't think he was using it just as an excuse. Have you read my tweets? Oh, I have, but I'm going to step it up on you, especially in light of what's going on today in America with Russia hacking us with our front door, back door, whatever door wide open and the president doing nothing and the Russians doing everything they could to help get him elected. And when he says Russia, 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 sarcastically, I say it seriously because I think he should have been impeached for what he did at the bidding of Vladimir Putin. And I think he's subordinate to Putin and it scares the crap out of me. Do you go that far? You know what's scarier to me, Craig, than anything? What? Is I have really close friends and really close family members who are normal, law-abiding, funny, great, wonderful people who think Trump's the greatest thing in the world. And I just cannot see it. I mean, I could see if this was all some, you know, hillbilly collecting welfare benefits, which is always the myth of what people like to say about Republicans, you know, but these are smart, educated people who believe that Trump is fabulous. And that is the scary thing to me. And there is, I mean, they would jump off a ship for this guy. How about 18 attorney generals, all presumably with law licenses, 126 Congress people supporting that attack in the Supreme Court, claiming this was a rigged election. You have Doug Lamborn and Ken Buck, signatories on that amicus. What the hell, Lynn Bartles? What's going on there? Well, who knows? And that's why politics is so strange. Colorado Public Radio did a really good feature on Scott Tipton leaving office. And he talked about how much more divisive it's become. He had a water bill that initially a lot of Democrats 
were signed on to, and eventually they fell off one by one because we can't do that. You're a Republican, and you have these Republicans saying, oh, we have to be with Donald Trump. No, they don't. And where is the big rebellion? Did you hear the outcry in this state when former Speaker Russ George, one of the most honorable men to ever serve in the legislature, just great guy, when he endorsed Diane Mitchbush over Lauren Bobet for Congress, Bobert, I always say it wrong. It sounds French to me. There are Trump enforcers out there. What do you think I ran into? And what I'm telling you, Lynn Bartles, and you say you've been tough, and it's tough for me to get past that paywall, and I should be paying because you are such a good writer. But the bottom line is this divisiveness is not something that came out of thin air. It came with Donald Trump. It's what cost you your job because this guy is deliberately divisive. And it doesn't play in Colorado, but it plays in the Bible Belt. It plays in South Dakota, maybe not in Vermilion, but around there. And the deliberate divisiveness and our cybersecurity systems being wide open and the claim that our elections are rigged It's all a wet dream for Vladimir Putin, is it not? So call me an old prosecutor, but I see here's the outcome. Here's the desire. I throw in what I saw in Helsinki. And you can say, Craig, you're going too far. Or, wow, I think you might be right. We we are on the same page when it comes to, and just the, his, when he fires people and what he says about them and, I mean, and how, but I will say this, that I look at Fox News and I'm just like, I'll turn it on now and then. And, you know, I have friends that I told you are very pro-Trump. When I visit them, they're watching Fox News. I'm listening to some of the things that are saying, and I'm really on my phone on Safari looking it up. And it's not true. Now, you can say CNN lies and MSNBC lies and all this stuff too, but the problem is now is, that you can watch TV 24 hours a day. Remember, it, what was it, 10 or 11 o'clock when it would go off and it was just, you'd have to go out in the living room, turn off that black and white fuzziness because your mom had fallen asleep on the couch watching Johnny Carson. Now, people fall asleep with Fox News on and it gets in their head and talk radio is a cancer and it, it's terrible, but still... It's out there. Why can't they put it together that Donald Trump's been saying for years everything's rigged? There are books written about what a cheater he is. He's had three wives. He cheated with a porn star. How can they put their trust in these people? What's wrong with these Republicans? Let's talk about evangelicals. How could you support a guy like Donald Trump? And you know what's interesting? And I think I might have told you this before, but I said I was for neither Hillary nor Trump and that I wasn't going to vote for either of them. And the Monday before the election, I came into the Secretary of State's office and told you know, Wayne and the inner circle, they were all Republicans, as I was at the time, that I voted for Hillary. And you know, Wayne is like, what? You know, it wasn't like you're fired or something crazy like that. But I told him, look, I'm sorry, I just don't buy the successful businessman when he's been in court that much. And what has been proven? that he was anything but. And yet, I look at my sister, another sister in New Mexico, who voted for Trump in 2016 on the grounds we need a successful businessman. And now, to her credit, she did not vote for him in 2010 because she said he is anything but a successful businessman. 
I mean, even if he were a successful businessman, his personality, his tweets, his this, his everything. I mean, he's raised a generation of grifters, and they're all just doing the same thing as he is. See, I told you I get really wired up when you talk no, about Trump. No, but there are some people who should know better, like Ken Buck. He's a trial attorney. He went to Princeton. What's going on with that man? I don't know. I mean, Lambert's kind of always been on the outside, you know, but you're right. Ken, you're just sort of like when he was running for the Senate in 2010, had there been a Trump, if you had asked him about him. But, you know, like you said, it's not just Ken Buck and it's not. But Ken Buck is a lead dog now. And you know what I think it is? We talked about Douglas Bruce and I covered the legislature when Douglas Bruce was there. And guess what? Republicans took care of their own then, and in a good way. You had one or two loose cannons, and the rest of the caucus kind of surrounded them and helped smother them a little. Doug Bruce got taken out. You look at some of the Klingenschmitts, these sort of thing. You had a small group of loose cannons. You look at now the House Republicans, you've got a much larger group of loose cannons. You don't have people surrounding people and saying, why would you begin to hold this hearing on the election. It's ridiculous. But I agree. The one thing that lawmakers are, it is correct, they are getting hundreds of emails from people saying the election was rigged. That's the scary part. Right, because they get it from the president. And now they're going to start with the anti-vaxxing. And it's another wet dream for a Russian leader like Putin, who thinks the collapse of the Soviet Union was the worst thing. He's the head of the Russian mafia who is behind this hack attack. They don't do it without Putin's permission. And he's a mobster. And to me, Donald Trump acts like a mobster. One of my favorite memes was it was Melania and Putin. And he said, poison him and come back home. And I just thought it was so perfect, you know, Putin, the poisoner. And yeah, I just am like, oh, I don't know. The whole thing is just I really do think it's that chapter in history where people will look back and say, what were you guys all thinking? Well, I'm worried that it shows a flaw in humanity that was revealed about 100 years ago and that certain people have an authoritarian personality. And we can kind of forgive people who don't follow the news that close. You and I follow it pretty close. But that brings me back to the Ken Bucks and the people who run Fox News or Denver Trump Radio. Because it gets away from them, too. They start giving this flame-throwing, it's all a fix, it's all fake news, you can't trust any of the lamestream media, the only guy you can trust is Rush Limbaugh. And eventually they start believing that, and you can't do anything. And Trump controls that base like nobody else, and these guys don't want to get primary. Doug Lamborn knows he's got a good thing, and he doesn't want Donald Trump aiming at him in El Paso County. Well, and you brought up Rush Limbaugh. That's kind of where it all started. When you can go on the air and say that the Clintons assassinated people and get away with it, what next? Right. And that's the one guy, if Trump lost Limbaugh's support, maybe he would have not have been where he is today. It's just remarkable to think about what's going on. But let's focus back on Colorado because you are so darn astute. Normally, we'd be hearing about people who are going to run for governor or senator against the incumbents, Bennett, Polis. What are you hearing? What do you think? I'm just, I'm wondering who would take on Polis. 
the guy, he prints money in his basement. And the other thing is, I know some very big conservatives who say, I hate to say that, but he's not doing that bad of a job. The things that the Democrats don't necessarily like him for, uh, like saying, well, it's okay to reduce the tax rate and all that. They're things that the Republicans love him for. He's got a libertarian streak, and that appeals to people. I tell you what, even if Polis weren't that wealthy, look at what he's done, and there's a, people who approve of it. I mean, that money, that scared Ed Perlmutter out of the race. Because if you run for office, and you've done this before, if you spend a good part of your time in a small office with a phone dialing for dollars, Polis has never had to spend one penny doing that. Or one second. Yeah. And he's got political skills. And the big rap that they put against Democrats, you're a socialist, she's a socialist. Jared Polis, when he was asked when Bernie Sanders was here, are you guys one and the same? He says, no, actually, I'm a capitalist. And he's got the proof in the pudding, right? He manufactures money in his basement. I didn't know that, but that's good business if you can get away with it. I'm just saying that he's incredibly wealthy. He is not like a knee-jerk socialist, as they like to describe. And I just think that, um, oh, I love it. Dueling dogs. I know. Uh, Even they like Jared Polis. And he's a big dog lover. He invited me to the Netanyahu speech. That's a long story, but his little dog was there. And you got to love a dog lover, which is another reason to dislike Donald Trump. Yes. Well, Donald Trump doesn't really like anybody but himself and his grifter children. Oh, except for Tiffany, because she has a weight problem. So he really never acknowledged her until he was running for president. I don't know who runs. She just went to law school, right? And she graduated. Did she take the bar? And how did she do? I don't know. I didn't follow that. She decided not to take the bar because she was part of the campaign. How did that work out? It'll be interesting to see if she becomes a lawyer, but I don't know if that's a good job. Then she'd have to work for daddy. And how's that worked out for like Michael Cohen? <laughs> and what do you think of Jen Ellis? My last column was ripping her. Is that fair? I, I don't think what she's doing is right. She's trying to destroy democracy. I think it's totally right. But let's get back to Polis and the governor's race. Please. I think whoever it is is sacrificial. Now, you never know because, you know, the midterms and this and that. But I don't think Polis is in any trouble. You just made me think of one. Our song this week is when the lion lays down with the lamb. And when you said sacrificial, I thought of Dick Lamb, but he won every time. Who do you have in mind as sacrificial? Like Patrick Neville? Dick Lamb ran for the U.S. Senate. Oh, that's right. And he ran for president, too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, when Dottie Lamb ran... She was the sacrificial lamb. Well, but remember Ben Nighthorse Campbell had the button that read Silence of the Lambs? I don't remember that, but I remember when she ran. Yes. And they used all of her columns that were in the Denver Post to prove she was a flaming liberal, which was a really bad thing in 98. But now she would win in a heartbeat against a Ben Nighthorse Campbell. I think she would. But so what about John Andrews? He's still available to run for governor. The sacrificial lamb yeah. against Roy Homer in 1990. Right. Um, yes. And maybe he can pick up that lefty vote because he says he now, John and I both love the phrase nothing burger. And that came up in the election hearing. Rhonda Fields used it. This is a nothing burger. 
So I was said on Twitter, hey, that's one of John Anders and mine's favorite sayings. And he said, oh, I eat impossible burgers now. So he could pick up that leftist social vote much more than he used to. Much more. Yeah. Which doesn't mean he'd have to increase his percentage a lot. It's fascinating to me, and their names have all come up, but where is John Andrews? Where is Bill Owens? Where is Bob Beaupre? As the president of the country, who is a Republican, does the kind of bullshit that's going on right now. And I'm allowed to say bullshit because this president says bullshit. Well, didn't you love Bill Owens coming out and saying the election is over? But that was on the day the transition already started. And it was a little way late in my book. I mean, and where is he now? Where is this sustained attack? I think what he did was great. And I laud him for it. I laud a Republican like you who says, screw it. I'm not going to be a Republican anymore with Donald Trump at the helm. Screw it. I will go on a podcast and say, this is an attack on democracy. Screw it. That's all more important to me than... Being a Republican or a Trumpster, and I don't care who knows about it. That's why you write a column. And here's the thing. I want the Republican Party to get strong again. Like you look at the 2012 legislative session, Democrats in the Senate, Republicans in the House. I like a split legislature. I like checks and balances. But as long as the Republicans, particularly in the House, eat each other for lunch they're not going to get stronger and get better and take on the Democrats. I ripped the House Republicans for making a big deal about not wearing masks during the special session. And I said, that's not the issue to go to the mattresses on. Wait till you have the session. You have the Democrats overreach on taxes, election bills, oil and gas, because it's all coming. Okay, here's the test. I've already written it in my column, and I was reading yours. I love it. You bring up so many great old names. Tustin Amol, she's a hoot on Facebook. Mary Alice Mandridge, Chip Spryer, Rick Anstrom. You brought up that I was on the fringes of politics and the media, and I'm in the legal world, but I want you to turn to Georgia. And even though I sort of like divided government in a way, no way can I support Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, who have backed all this Trump bullshit no. or corrupt. So I have to go for Ossoff and Warnock. You? Yes, I do. Even though I have to say, I don't actually pay that much attention to national politics. I remember sitting across from Curtis Lee at the Denver Post, and he always read the New York Times every morning. And he said to me, do you think Rubio has much of a chance to be president? And I go, who? And he goes, Marco Rubio. And I go, who's he? I've never heard of him. I don't really pay attention to national politics, but I can walk into a safe way and see Amanda Sandoval's husband shopping and saying, what are you doing? And he said, I'm buying all this taco meat because we have all these people coming over to the house to support us because we think there's going to be like a Black Lives Matter protest against Amanda for what she said during a city council meeting. It's all local to me. I'm about local politics. And you are social. I mean, you go to all the events. Well, I was social. So I'm, I'm worried about you in COVID time. What do you do for your social? I don't. And well, let me see. I've, it has been really depressing is all I can say. Now, and I keep saying, I have no reason to be depressed. I 
bought my condo outright. I don't have a mortgage payment. I don't have a reason to be depressed, but it has been, and you have to realize when I lost my job, I did then communication consulting. I was already working out of my house. You know, I already had a COVID lifestyle somewhat before that. I mean, Craig, you know me, I was a workaholic. I never not worked. I worked Saturdays and Sundays. I worked all the time. I went to so many political events on the weekend that I could show up at an event and know 90% of the people there. And then all that's taken away from you. And it's just been, it's been a rough year, but I don't have it like other people. I'm so much better off than some poor other people who work at a restaurant and are trying to live in a $1,500 a month apartment and are trying to get by on unemployment benefits that expire December 31st. And you've got a White House who can only tweet about how poor am I and the election was rigged without paying attention to people's economic problems, people dying, the hospitals full, Russia tapped in. Here's the issue of our times. And as social as you are, and the way you could go between Dems and Republicans, I just don't know if that world will exist anymore because I think that Trump has really divided us to the point where I'm getting to an age where being around Trumpsters is not my cup of tea. You talked about in your own family. It's, it's heartbreaking, right? It's really heartbreaking. I will say that I love that Wayne Williams, the former Secretary of State, when he was testifying at that election committee. And Wayne did such an incredible job. I mean, but he pointed out, he's now on the Colorado Springs City Council, and he said, I hear from far more people who are worried about unemployment benefits than I hear about people about the election. And isn't that the truth? And Wayne testified that Dominion Voting Systems out of Denver is a fine company. They had their boss, Eric Coomer, do an op-ed in the Denver Post how he's been chased out of town by spurious accusations that emanate from that Bandamere crowd, right? They meet at Bandamere, they go on Denver Trump radio, and they allegedly heard a conversation and Coomer's like Peter Strzok. What is Denver Trump radio? Oh, it's the radio where everybody is for Donald Trump. Everybody votes for him. Nobody. Who are who are the talkers? Who are the Boyles in particular? Boyles, a guy you know and I know, and who took a turn for disaster. He used to hate all politicians equally, except for maybe Tom Tancredo. But then he fell in love with Donald Trump, and shit that used to bother him. Like, my God, remember how he traded on that. Ted Haggard story out of Colorado Springs and Mike Jones and a closeted life, a double life, religious hypocrisy. Well, what did he do with the Falwell story? The ally of Trump, not a damn thing because he protects Trump. And now he's starting to realize how kooky his audience has gone. I don't listen that much anymore, but they're all for Trump. They have to be for Trump. You got Sebastian Gorka on Denver radio. You got a guy like Joe Pags on KHOW, people who just mindlessly support Donald Trump and not a contrary view is hurt. And that's their market. It's a lot like the Republican Party. There's only one group that we really want to cater to, and that's the Trump crowd. And they have their way. And to me, it's a shame. It's ruining that form of media. And it does date back to Rush Limbaugh. I don't know why that has to be the model, but 
That's the way it is, especially now in Denver and throughout America. You take 77 WABC in New York. It's all right-wing nonsense. Rudy Giuliani has a show. And between that and the podcast they push out, backing this Trump bullshit about rigged elections, that's where your sister and others are getting it from. Oh, I know. I know. I used to say I was so frustrated because my sister, it wasn't like she quoted her husband quoting Fox News. Like, I'm like, she wouldn't even watch it herself. She would just say, well, he said, or she said, and I'd be like, I read newspapers. And, and one of my favorite moments came when Obama in 2012, his first debate was in Denver. It was at DU. And you might remember he did a horrible job. And I know this conservative woman from Colorado Springs who put a thing up on her Facebook saying, well, he was terrible, but the mainstream media will never report that because they love him. So I called up my brother-in-law, Big D. He was Obama's stage manager in the 2012 convention. And I said, send me the critical stories that you, I had found my own, but he had more. So I went onto her Facebook page and I go, what about this story? What about this story? One right after another. And they were all just, just ripping on a new one. And she answered, well, I didn't know. And I said, you didn't know because you watch Fox News and you believe Fox News. Correct. But just think back, that wasn't that long ago. And that was Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan in charge of the Republican Party. What a different party it was. Let's be fair to Republicans here. What a party it was. But the Democrats weren't saying, these guys are basically good guys, but we want Obama in. I mean, they were ripping them all new ones, too. I think it's interesting that George W. Bush and Mitt Romney are now the voices of reason. But when they were running for office, they were, you know, hell on earth. Well, I mean, Romney was portrayed as milk toast, and he, he put his dog on his car for that one ill-fated trip. But he was basically, I mean, this is back when Republicans could be trusted, like Wayne Williams. And how about that Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffenberger? Isn't he an American hero? Yes. And I think the irony of this whole thing in Georgia is. It's what happened in the governor's race in Georgia two years ago. It was the Georgia Secretary of State who was running for governor, and they felt like there weren't enough voting machines and all that in the black communities. And God loves Stacey Abrams for fighting back and winning on that. Well, okay, quite frankly, look at, and this is why Ken Buck surprises me because decisions are all over the map, but last week they had that video chat about the election. They had three Republican county clerks on from El Paso County, Weld County, and Matros County saying the election is safe, the results are accurate, defending the election. And you saw what happened on Twitter afterward. I don't know if you saw it. I did, but that's where Ken Buck needs to stand up and he needs to tweet that Jen Ellis has no business testifying as some kind of expert in Colorado. You are a hoot, Len Bartles, and I'm going to tell you that 2021 is going to be great for you because just when the sun comes out, the vaccine will be there. We'll be vaccinated. We'll start going to things. You'll go to everything. I'll go to occasional things and life will resume. And Donald Trump, he'll get into fitness down in Florida and he'll become progressive as he gets older. Let's hope for something good like that. Well, this has been delightful, Lynn Bartles. Everybody can see how talented you are. 
I think I'm going to have to subscribe to Colorado Politics to see what the competition is up to. I'm afraid I'll start copying you because you're so bright. And if you think about it, I like to think I have great Colorado institutional memory since I'm fourth generation, but you get here in 1993, and I think you know more about Colorado than I do, and that kind of pisses me off. Do you know why? Because you've done it for a living? No, but partly, for example, when I was assigned to cover the Denver mayor's race in 2003, I came in on the weekends. Back then, you had you know the morgue, the library, the morgue. Everything was in those hard clips, and I read every clip I could on all the races as far back as it went. So people say, oh, she's covered Denver politics for 30 years. And I'm like, okay, I know I look old, but A, I haven't. And the other thing at the legislature is I would go in at like 7 a.m. to try to get a parking spot at the, you know, around the Capitol. And then maybe like on a Monday, it wouldn't start till 10 a.m. So you wouldn't talk to people. And that's how you picked up information. You would introduce yourself to people and say, hey, I see you represent that Suagauchi County. What is that? And that's how you learn that it's so Right. You become swash and get information. And the fact that you can't sleep allows you to get to 7 a.m. Wake up at the Capitol easy. Well, now I can't fall asleep, but I can't wake up. So, you know, the joys of getting older. I know, but time has no meaning right now. I know. Craig, I will say this. What you and your partner in crime did back in the election in that time back then, whether it was Ward Church or, or politics, you guys did a really good job. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun. And it's interesting whether a show like ours can even exist in the current environment. I, I kind of doubt it because people have become so divided and If anybody can fix it, I think Joe Biden might be able to. I've really been impressed by Joe Biden. It's not that I was a huge fan of his, but I pray that he and his wife and his administration and Kamala Harris, I I just hope the best for them. Well, we have to because we have to do some repairing. Yes, we do. And we have to keep talking. Lynn, I really enjoyed our talk. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And happy holidays to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler Training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, call my old friend Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome. Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. 
Stan Garnett, welcome back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge. What a tough act you have to follow your own son, Alec. We heard about your other son, Andrew, your wife, Brenda. I think the audience knows everything about your family now, but you must be very proud. I am very proud, Craig, and great to be on the Lawyers Lounge again. And thanks for giving Alex some time to talk. He's got a lot to talk about. He is impressive. Tell everybody how far we go back. Well, Craig, you and I have been friends, I think, since 1979 or 1980, when we were both in law school. You were a year ahead of me, and then we were both interns in the Denver District Attorney's Office and became Deputy District Attorneys in the early 1980s. And were you hired by Brooke Wanneke, as I was? I was. was Yeah. Tell everybody about Brooke. I was hired by Brooke Wanneke. Brooke Wanneke, as you and I have discussed before, is a real legend in the Colorado legal community. She was a woman who had moved from Wyoming to Colorado to be Dale Tooley's chief of appellate and also chief of hiring and supervising interns. Was an absolutely delightful person. Brooke was, I believe, the first woman admitted to practice law in the state of Wyoming. And she tried the jury trials in Wyoming for several years before women could actually even sit on juries in Wyoming and was a terrific lawyer, a great mentor and a very good writer. I've been thinking about our experiences back in the day, and I think we might have been a little more advanced than other members of our society, because when I went to CU Law School, I think at least half of the students were female. A lot of our professors were female. When I got hired during my second year to be an intern at the Denver DA's office, it was Brooke Wanneke working for Dale Tooley who hired me, and she was my mentor. She taught me how to do a lot of things that have served me as a lawyer. So don't you think we were kind of privileged in that respect to maybe realize early on? I had a very accomplished sister. She's much smarter than me, a board-certified veterinarian. So I never imagined that women could be anything less than superstars, right? No, that's really true, Craig. We were very fortunate to have the mentorship we got in the Denver DA's office, particularly from Brooke. And I think we also really benefited from Dale Tooley's commitment, Dale being the elected DA at the time, to diversity in that office. They didn't call it diversity in those days, but Dale was very committed to having a DA's office that looked like the community he served in Denver. And there were a lot of women on the staff in leadership positions and a lot of folks from different parts of the community So it was a great opportunity for us. Right. And my fellow interns included Velveeta Golightly, who's had an amazing career. And of course, Karen Steinhauser with all her accomplishments. And we had a great attorney named Michael Cohen and some guy, I don't know what happened to him, named Bill Ritter. Do you know whatever happened to that guy? Yeah, he's around. He's around. He's running the think tank or something, right? But yeah, no, it was a great group. And I'll tell you a funny story, Craig. I tried a very intense trial in 2016 in Boulder, very high profile case with lots of press coverage. And in the trial, uh, judge in the case was Maria Birkenkotter, who just got appointed to the Supreme Court. And the two defense lawyers were women. The defendant was a woman. My co-counsel was a woman. And the advisory witness was a woman. And I remember, and everybody's about 10 years younger than me, too, or more than that. I was clearly the oldest one in the courtroom. And I remembered at one point when I lost an objection in a conference at the bench, thinking, is it because I'm a guy? 
And, uh, and so I, w- I was teasing Judge Birkenkotter afterwards. I said, you know, I wondered if there was some gender bias in the courtroom. She goes, yeah, well, welcome to, to what I experienced my first couple of decades practicing law. So the law is a profession that has changed a lot, and there's a lot of gender equity in the law, which is something I think we can all be proud of. Well, let's brag on you, because that was a tough prosecution, brutal case. A woman cut open another woman to get a child inside. I mean, just an amazing case, but not a lot of prosecutors would have taken that on themselves, but you did. Why did you do that? Well, I was really committed, Craig, when I was district attorney. I really felt the elected district attorney needed to put himself in the same position as the staff in terms of being willing to go to trial and handle contested issues and motions and pick juries and take cases to verdict. As you may recall, when I first took over in the Boulder DA's office in 2008, I was concerned the office didn't go to trial enough. So I wanted to send a message to everybody that I was willing to put the hard work into trial that I expected them to do. And you did prove that. And when we were growing up in Denver, there was a little bit of a looking down our nose at Alex Hunter in the Boulder DA's office because it was plea bargain city. Maybe Boulder didn't have as much tough crime, but there was a different ethos in the Denver DA's office. And again, you bring up powerful women who helped form a lasting impressions. You know that when Lynn Huffnagel and Connie Peterson got to Denver District Court, they changed everything. And I was assigned to them, including Connie Peterson, for the death penalty case against Frank Rodriguez. So, yes, I was very used to powerful women. Yep. No, that's very true. Did you ever work in front of those two? Oh, yes. I, I handled a number of trials in front of both. As a matter of fact, Connie Peterson was appointed to the district court bench, I believe, in January of 1985. Uh, She was a Governor Lamb appointee, and that was right when I was transferred to felony court. So I kind of learned to be a felony deputy in front of Connie Peterson and got to know her well. And then Judge Hoffnagel was in the courtroom right next door, and I handled a number of things in front of her as well. So they were both fine judges. Right. And it was great training ground. And I think I've got you figured out because I talked to your son, but you are competitive. You're in (laughs) chalk. What do you think your son said your best sport was? (laughs) I, my best sport, what would he say my best sport was? Tennis, I guess. I don't know. Yes. Yes. And I think I know your competitive nature. And once you start doing trials and as, Young prosecutors, we would do one about once a month, and that was a nice rhythm, and you managed to keep it up throughout your career in private practice, stand that served on the school board. You like to stay busy, but you also like that adrenaline rush of competition. Am I right? That's true, and I'm also a real believer in the value of the adversarial system that we have in the courts in the United States, and I think Lawyers have an obligation to take appropriate cases to trial so they can be publicly resolved in a way that is fair. All right. Are you ready for the total quiz? Yeah. Get ready. Let's go. Okay. All right. What was your son's best sport? Tennis. And how was he as a basketball player at Fairview High School? He was a pretty good basketball player. I think he was better than he realized. What was his best move in basketball? I don't know. He was a forward. Um, and if he had somebody posted up, what was he likely to do to score on him? How about that little baby hook? 
Okay, maybe you forgot about Baby that. Hook, yep. Yep. Maybe yep. you're thinking about your other son, Andrew. But we'll I think there's a picture of him actually in the in the Boulder Daily camera that we've got somewhere in a scrapbook with that baby hook move. All right. What was his best game ever in high school? In terms of points? Yeah, well, just the best he played. And he said you were there. Yeah, I was I was I think I was at all of his games. He played well, he are we talking tennis or basketball? We're talking basketball. Basketball. He had a good game against Cherry Creek. But I can't, I can't remember the specific points. He liked it against Oberlin. You're close. Same school district. <laughs> but he said it was there. He went for 16 right. points, eight rebounds. When yeah, asked that's true. If I his that. father was disruptive or polite as he was in the <laughs> crowd, what would he say? He would say polite. Correct. And what do you think he said is the best sports event that you and he participated in ever? Well, he and I played some father-son tennis, and uh, we won the club championship at the Meadows Swimming Tennis Club. Against a bunch of stuck-up people who played tennis all the time, and they <laughs> thought they were going to whip you, but you whipped them. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. We were a pretty good team. Yeah. What do you think you said is the Garnett family, and we're talking about when your boys were in high school, the favorite food? Uh, pizza. He said mashed potatoes. Was there a signed seating at the table? It wasn't a sign, but everybody kind of sat in the same place. So it, maybe Correct. it was, it, we'd call that like a prescriptive easement. Yeah. Yeah. Let's turn our attention to Christmas. Is that a big deal for the Garnett family back in the day still? It, yeah, it is. Yeah, sure. When is the correct time to open the gifts? Uh, Christmas morning. When does Christmas morning get started? Uh, about nine o'clock. Because what happens at nine o'clock? We finish eating breakfast. Your son said it was when you had your coffee made. That's when he told us you started uh -huh. him drinking coffee at what age? Yeah. yeah, I probably started him drinking coffee around nine or ten. Nine or ten. He said twelve, but uh, I think you're in yeah. trouble with the authorities now. I'm not sure. I think you're, I, you're I more of be. the authority. Could they open anything before you and Brenda finally got up? I think we let them open one present. They said they got to go into the stockings. Oh, yeah, that's right. Stockings, of okay, course. That's well, right. That's all right. Now, who's the fastest eater in the family? Uh, I think it might be me. That's right. Who's the yep. biggest eater when they let themselves really eat? Uh, that might be me as well, actually. No, Alex Although I thinks he could out-eat you. Yeah, I think he can. Alex is a pretty good eater. Who yeah. is the pickiest eater? I think Andrew. Is he really picky, or is there anybody in the family who's worse? Um, it's your grandson, Ashton. Alec gave oh, him Ashton, up. Oh, Ashton, of course. He gave him up. I didn't know we were talking about the next generation. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ashton is definitely, he can definitely be a little picky. Yep. Okay, who's the best cook in the family? Well, my daughters-in-law are great, but my wife is always going to be the best cook in the family. And what's the best thing she makes baking on Christmas? Well, she makes great turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes when we do that. She also makes a great ham on Christmas. Uh, Let's get to the sweet stuff. We're talking baked goods. Baked goods, great chocolate chip cookies, great... Uh, How about the cinnamon rolls with walnuts on them? Cinnamon rolls and with, with, with or without walnuts, depending. Yeah, they're the best. What is the Garnett family TV most likely going to be on? Sports. ESPN. Good. I'll give you credit for that. Yeah. When you watch the TV news, what's most likely? Uh, CBS. He said nine news, but then you switch around a lot. 
Yeah, they do switch around. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Now, growing up, was there a late night show that you guys preferred? Was it Leno? Letterman? Letterman. That's what he said. And who is it now? Well, I go to bed about nine o'clock these days, oh um, but I certainly enjoy Bill Maher. I mean, it's great to be able to tape shows and watch them later. All right. What was the favorite Garnett TV show that would rally the whole family? If you get this one, I'll be surprised. Uh, uh, the Sopranos? No, but that's a good answer. That definitely would work in my family. But he said 90210. Oh, yeah, not not this generation. Maybe his generation. All right. Maybe that was him and his brother, Andrew. Yeah, it could be. Who was the best Garnett family pet ever? Uh, well, it would be Stella, the current bulldog, or maybe our golden retriever, Maggie. He gave it to Stella. Stella was the winner. What is the best most memorable big sports moment that you experienced as a family. Not when you won that big tennis tournament at the Meadows. But... <laughs> well, we went to the first Super Bowl the Broncos won against Green Bay. He did not mention that. He mentioned something more obscure. Let me give you a hint. Okay. You were at Spinney Reservoir. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. We were fishing and we were listening on the radio to the CU Michigan game where we had the Hail Mary pass, which gosh, that would have been what about 1994. That was a great, that was a great sporting event. We were not there in person though. Right. But it's called that. You remember where you were when you heard the call and you guys started screaming and you scared off all the fish. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Your son's a cool guy and you did pretty darn good on that test. And, uh, good. I think your son's going to go far. How far do you want him to go? President? Well, you know, I've been in politics enough, Craig, to know what a demand it is on him and his family. So I want him to do what's right for him. And, you know, being Speaker of the Colorado House is a real accomplishment. He's had a very distinguished career so far. So I want him to do what makes sense for him. I think he is a good leader and he's got a good executive personality. So, you know, positions like mayor or governor or those kinds of things would be things you do very well. But whether it makes sense to run for them will be issues he'll have to decide with his wife. Stan, you've seen it all in politics and you're not done yet, but you've run for office successfully, Boulder School Board, Boulder DA. You ran for attorney general. You came up short. What's more memorable to you? Do you remember the loss more or the victories or how does it add up for you? That's a great question. And, you know, I um, and I think Alex this way, too, but I never did anything in politics or political life that I didn't think I would enjoy doing. So obviously I enjoyed winning. That's always fun. But I enjoyed that attorney general's race a lot. I don't know if you remember the year was 2010. It was not a good year to be a Democrat in Colorado. And I was asked to run because the party didn't have a candidate. And I very much enjoyed running a vigorous race for six months. And um, I actually did better than a number of the other statewide candidates that year. So I felt like we'd had a successful campaign. But it's all been fun. It's all been memorable. And, you know, total, I've served 17 years in public office of one sort or another. So I've enjoyed that chance to contribute to the community. And you are so successful in private practice. Let's talk about Bill Weiser. What do you make sure. of him? Do you know him well? CU Law Dean. 
That's where I got to know him. What do you think? I do know Phil. I think Phil's doing a nice job as attorney general. It's an important position in the Colorado system. He has a chance to set a lot of policy direction and to make sure that Colorado is pointed in the right position on a lot of national issues. And I've admired his ability to, I think, get that office in a philosophical position that is much more in line with how I see the world than with the two previous Republican attorneys general. Seems to me the power in Colorado kind of flows through the plat irons. Even Jenna Griswold, our secretary of state, I can't get to Estes Park without going through Boulder. I suppose I could, but it wouldn't be quick. Jared Polis is kind of a Boulder guy. Bill Weiser had the big job at CU Law School. Am I onto something? Does power flow through Boulder? (laughs) Well, Boulder is a very special place. And, you know, I've worked in in denver most of my career so i understand how other parts of the state see boulder but boulder is a very special place i used to say when i was in uh school board and da the thing about boulder is everybody has an opinion about everything and people have a lot of time on their hands so they have plenty of time to come down and tell you what they think i think what that does is it creates an environment in which people debate issues they care about issues they want to make the world a better place and a lot of times that leads to involvement in public life Speaking of strong women who I encountered at the old Denver DA's office, Beth McCann, the current Denver DA, do you stay in touch with Beth? We both worked with her back in the day. And how do you think she's doing? I do stay in touch with Beth. And, you know, Beth, I believe, uh, was one of the first female chief deputies in the Denver DA's office and in the state of Colorado and was a very fine trial lawyer when I first got to know her. I do stay in touch with her. I think she's doing a good job. She's had a you know, a lot of challenges in that office. It's a difficult office, but she's done a job, I think, of striking the balance between appropriate reform and keeping the community safe. Why is it difficult? I mean, I worked there. Was it difficult then? Well, I think it's one thing to be a line deputy, Craig, like you and I were. It's another thing to be the leader of the office and kind of deciding on the direction of the office. It's one of the things I think people don't fully understand about the elected district attorney position is how much authority an elected district attorney has to set law enforcement priorities for the the jurisdiction. Right. And to hire and fire. Did you see that story about Alexis King, the new DA in Jeffco? She was just in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I knew her a little in Denver and in Jeffco, but for people who missed it, there was a big Denver Post article about about 10 lawyers getting axed. Some of them really experienced guys and gals that Stan and I know. What did you make of that story? And did you do something similar when you got to Boulder? Yeah, I actually have a fair amount of empathy for Alexis and the challenge of coming in to take over an office. You know, the community elects a district attorney to be personally accountable for law enforcement issues in the jurisdiction. And that requires that the district attorney have people working for him or her who really are aligned with priorities. When I took over, The Boulder DA's office, we had a turnover of staff of about a third of the lawyers that worked for me, which was a pretty significant number. The press paid a lot of attention to that, but I assured people that I knew what I was doing and we were heading in a direction we wanted to go. And I think it worked out pretty well. It is a challenge and the challenge for Alexis will be to make sure that she replaces the people that were let go with strong people and that she produces priorities for that judicial district that are consistent with what the constituents want to have. I talked about it with Alexis. I had John Kellner on 
recently, and he talked about his time working for you. Brian Mason's been a guest. Michael Doherty has been in the lounge several times. I would think it would be difficult to build a new staff and a new great DA's office environment in this COVID era. So much of it was just shooting the uh, whatever around the office and saying, hey, I have this issue. And how does that work these days? Isn't it difficult? Yeah, no, it really is difficult. It's certainly difficult in private practice because I've always said, and I, and I suspect, Craig, that you agree with me, being a trial lawyer, being a litigator is not a job you can do alone. You need to be trying out your ideas, talking about your cases, developing arguments in a, in a group setting. And it's very hard to do when you're not seeing people. I know in my office, we now have, I think, four or five associates who have been hired since COVID who I work with on things. And these are people that I've never met except through video calls. So that's a challenge. And it'll be a challenge for Alexis and these DAs. You can do civil work more remotely than you can criminal because of the constitutional issues where people have a right to be present and, and witnesses to testify in person. But it'll be a real challenge to assemble the right people and then build a team because that's what you got to do in prosecution is make sure you have a team of people all working on the same value set and headed in the same direction. So it'll be a challenge for her and for all of the new ones. Right. Some of the team members you replaced when you took over the Boulder DA's office were people who worked on the most famous case in Boulder history. It kind of intersected with my life, not as much as yours, but... I lost Bill Ritter running to be Denver DA in November of 1996. And then in December 1996, little Sean Benet got killed. And some reporters called me for quotes about what was going to happen in the criminal system. I responded. And next thing you know, I was making a lot of appearances talking about this famous case. Where were you in December 1996, Stan? It must have impacted you being the bolder guy you are. It's a well-known spot where it occurred on 15th Street, as I recall. But back then, were you in private practice? I was actually at the time of the death. I'd taken the boys on a Christmas ski trip. Brenda was not as into skiing as I was. And so I took the kids up there and I sort of followed the initial reports as a kidnapping and then the death from Copper Mountain where we were staying. Right. And your kids went to Fairview, but you must know that location just above the hill in Boulder. Mm -hmm. Yep, I do. Yep. Anyway, you went on to handle the case and its many machinations. And there was a character involved that I once got a call from, Lynn Wood. Silverman is Lynn Wood. If you keep talking about my clients, the Ramseys, I'm going to own your firstborn child. And I remember that call because I told my wife about that because I thought it's her child too. And now I see Lynn Wood and he's calling for martial law and postponing elections in Georgia and he's getting sued by his staff. Have you been following the adventures of Lynn Wood? I have a little bit. I have a couple of clients that are involved in some of the issues around the elections, and I have and not directly with Lynn Wood, but I have seen him. Lynn, here's what I know about Lynn Wood: he's a guy that likes the spotlight, and he's a guy that is not hesitant about stating positions that, to many of us, appear to be either extreme or not based in reality. That's interesting because I met him once in a federal courthouse in Denver when he was with John Clune, a lawyer in Boulder, who I know you know well, 
and I introduced myself, and he was representing Kobe Bryant's alleged victim in a civil proceeding. So he's been involved in some famous Colorado controversies. But speaking of John Clune, you and he represented Deborah Ramirez, who was an important witness in the Kavanaugh matter. You haven't been in the lounge since that happened. What are your reflections on that right now, Stan? Well, I got to know Debbie and her husband very well, and they're just lovely people. She's a very private person and was not comfortable being in the spotlight that that brought to her. But it was one of the first cases that I took right after leaving SDA, and I'm now doing a fair amount of criminal defense and other work, and, and I've realized the important role a lawyer has of helping a client manage a difficult time in their lives. And that was very much what we did with Debbie. She felt she had an obligation to say what she knew. And part of my job with John was to make sure she got a chance to do that, but that we protected her from some of the crazy vitriol that her experience provoked. And what about yourself? I mean, there was a lot of vitriol thrown at you. And I got into it with certain radio hosts defending Stan Garnett, who I've known for a long time. And when you vouch for the credibility of Debbie Ramirez, I didn't think it was some plot by lefty pinkos to bring down Kavanaugh. I took you at your word. And now I understand you've known her for a long time. And what about that vitriol? Did it get to you? It had to be higher stakes than even the high stakes you've been used to. Yeah, it was pretty intense. But I have through the years gotten somewhat immune to that. Again, Boulder, everything's controversial in Boulder. So if you're in the middle of things, you get a little bit used to that. The other thing is too, and Craig, you know this, because I know a lot of the controversial cases you've represented folks on, you get very committed to the mission of a lawyer, which is to take what your client's story or experience is and help them convey it and communicate it in an appropriate way and in an appropriate forum. And you also realize the importance of that role. So Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of vitriol, but it passes and you move on to the next case. And do you forget about it? I mean, do the people who are hating on you, do you remember that or do you remember everything or do you just let it go? Yeah, you just, I mean, I've never had a whole lot of trouble letting it go. I mean, I think it's easy if you don't get over kind of overly caught up in, in your own individual role in it and kind of see yourself as sort of a person that's been put in a position that life is presented, then you just take what you get and you move on. These are unique times. I tell my kids, this is not normal. And Donald Trump is the cause of it in my mind. He's disruptive and deliberately so. I've never seen anything quite like it. I can't believe 74 million Americans voted for him after what he's demonstrated during his term. And I'm concerned. I'm concerned about what he's going to do in the next 30 plus days. That's too long. Do you share my concerns? I do. I also was reading over lunch hour about these, this Russian hacking that occurred uh, a few months ago. All of that concerns me. And Craig, I hate to do this, but I do have to hop off on this call. That's all right. I can go off on Donald Trump on my own. Stan, thanks yeah. for being such a good friend and for taking my questions. Merry Christmas to you and your family. Same to you, Craig. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? You're looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you, 
but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because you know bad things might happen. You know, if if you have a a son or a daughter who you know absolutely you know is, is the stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom, and then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have or. You know, are we going to what treatment option are we going to have for mom? And paralyzed by, oh no, I can't have anything bad happen to mom. Not the right person. So you want somebody who can look at a situation, still loves their, still loves the person, but is able to do do what's right and do what's necessary for your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. Troubadour. How are you? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Yes, we record this on the last night of Hanukkah, day after my birthday. And who gave me the best presents? My buddy, Dave Gunders, the troubadour. I've never had an Elmer Fudd hat like that before. It is a bit of an Elmer Fudd. (laughs) Sorry about that. That's all right. I wore it flaps up and flaps down. I like it flaps down. It's been a brittle week. A little frigid, yeah. but how are yeah. you, my friend? What is I am the, well. What is the Christmas season all about for you? Oh, well, friends and family getting together, enjoying the people you love, all of that, and the rituals of food and gift-giving, everything like that. It's a little truncated this year. I like Christmas carols. How about you, Mr. Musician? So much. Sure. What's your favorite Christmas carol? Oh, I don't I mean, I love all of them. You know, oh, Tannenbaum comes to mind. I know a Jewish guy named Tannenbaum. <laughs> he made it into a Christmas song. Mine is easy. Silver bells. Oh, and why? Because I'm a silver man. That's right. That's right. No, I have a new favorite. It's called When the Lion Lays Down with the Lamb. Mm-hmm. It's by my favorite musician, Dave Gunders. Tell everybody about this song. This song I wrote, I think it's been about 12 years. It was a morning of a huge storm in Denver. I lived in Wash Park, raising our two children who were at that time, oh, gee, they were like eight and 10. Is this about the time you broke the child labor laws and put them to work? (laughs) No, they helped on occasion. It was volunteer. But I, I drove my huge expedition, which had great clearance and got me through to my office, the world was asleep. It was one of those mornings where nobody was out on the roads except crazy people like me. I went to my office, looked outside. There must have been three feet of snow. It was one of those kinds of storms. And it was just like a magical moment, and I wrote the song. You wrote a Christmas song. You know you're not the first Jewish guy to do that. Tell me. Well, I think White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. There's probably been a number of them. But it's cool that you wrote a Christmas song. It's perfect for our Christmas show. And my daughters were young. It was one of our early efforts together. So you'll hear they weren't 
necessarily on pitch, but I love the way they sang. I feel bad about this pandemic Christmas because so many people are missing out. And think about us. No Chinese restaurants will be open. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. There's a lot of people missing out. I, uh, you know, we've, you and I have talked about it many times. How luck we're so fortunate compared to so many others. And we kid around, but these are divisive times. And your song, your Christmas song, has that message about united we stand, divided we fall. Right. Yes. And the imagery of the lion laying down with the lamb. That's what we want for everybody. Peace on Christmas. That's right. And I feel bad that families can't get together. Thanksgiving, Christmas, but alibi, as our people say. God willing, yeah. next year will be a lot better, 2021. I do believe that. I do believe that. We're on the cusp of this vaccine era. And, um, you know, I think people just have to tough it out through the winter. That's right. But it is tough, yeah. Especially people living alone, not being able to get together with their families. Right, but they have the music of the troubadour. And here it is, my new favorite Christmas song. When the lion lays down with the lamb. Thank you, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig.
catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hello, this is Michael Bailey. Hey, Michael. Craig. Hey, Craig. Good to hear from you. Merry Christmas, Michael Bailey. And happy Hanukkah to you, sir. Thank you. Speaking of which, what was that character's name in A Wonderful Life? Is it Mr. Bailey? That was involved? George Bailey. George Bailey. It was, it was Uncle George. Uncle George. We love Uncle George. He's a lot more fun at parties than Uncle Beetle. So. so what is Christmas like for the Bailey household? Well, I kind of go crazy with Christmas lights. My Christmas display is I've probably got 15,000 lights in my Christmas that I put up. What? And we enjoy that. Now, is there ladder climbing involved? No. No my house is set up so I can go out the second story window and just be on the roofs because there's a first floor roof and a second floor roof. So I can just stand on the roof and put everything up. Well, good. You're a great lawyer. And in your business, you know, which involves the end of life, you got to be careful, Michael, right? We're all only a misstep away. 
It's true. I had a uh, junior high math teacher who was uh, paraplegic because he fell off a ladder putting up Christmas lights. So I'm always very careful. I put them up in November when there's no snow and ice and then just, you know, have them up and you're as careful as you can be because you never know what's going to happen. Okay, tell us your Christmas tradition. When are gifts exchanged? Christmas morning. We get them all under the tree, and then Christmas morning we have rules on our kids can't wake us up before like 6.30 or 7, and then we go down and do Christmas presents all together as our immediate family, and then we tend to head up to Grandpa and Grandma's house and do family presents in the afternoon. Oh, how fun is that? How did you negotiate with your kids for that 6.30 or 7 o'clock rule? That's not great bargaining. I would have gotten, of course, I've never had Christmas, but I, I would have said, I'm sleeping until 7.30. Well, the ability to sleep into 7.30 is something that you have that I don't, because oh. I'm normally up by 6.30 or 7 with the kids anyway. But, you know, Christmas morning, they're up at 5, and I'm like, no, this is how it's going to be. You're not going to come get us till 6.30 or 7. That's just how it is. And that's when the dogs start to stir anyway. So it's an okay time. Right. And after all, you know how to celebrate Christmas. Do you do things just the way your parents did, or do you modify it for your own household? Modified for my own household. Because, you know, if we did everything the way that my parents did it, then none of my wife's traditions would be included. So got to account for both there. Okay, I'll put you on the spot. What's one thing from your wife and her family that you have incorporated into the Bailey Christmas? So they would always do like, it's like Father Christmas would come and put little gifts in the shoes. I think it was some sort of tradition that they picked up. So they have in shoes, we have like little candy that we'll put in the shoes. That was never something we did growing up at my family. Gosh, I thought it was stockings. What do I know? It's like Ross Kaminsky well, <laughs> with that sock, we, sock, shoe, shoe stuff, whatever that is. But we do stockings too. Just, just it's in the shoes. There's like old father time or something. So yeah, it's just slightly different. And can the kids go into the stockings before you wake up? We've kind of said because we live in a two-story house. So we're like, hey, everybody needs to stay upstairs until they go downstairs because. We have to go down and we have to take pictures on the stairs and then pictures of everything and then pictures as they're opening things. We want to preserve memories for later on down the line. You know, we have eight days of Hanukkah, but normally you have one big party. And my mom came up with an expression, which I don't live by, especially in the age of the smartphone and its camera technology. But she would say, don't let the camera dominate the celebration. We've all seen that, right? Right. Well, that's why we do the pictures first, and then we can celebrate afterwards. But we've got, we've got them connected. It's like a wedding. And I didn't know you back then, but it was 26 years ago. And we had a great wedding at Beth Joseph Synagogue. And then we took pictures afterwards. And that took way too long because all my buddies were drinking and uh, getting food and I was hungry and I wanted to be with them. Anyway, you can see it right. in some of some of my expressions, but that's just me. Uh, I get upset about right. silly things. If BYU would have beaten Coastal <laughs> Carolina the other day, December 5, and been perfect on their season, could they have competed for the title or is your alma mater still being discriminated against? Well, they could have competed for the title, but they would not have been given the opportunity. 
That's what I'm saying. It's it's separate but unequal. Well, you know, there's I mean, Power Five conferences, and you know, the SEC has done a great job of promoting the SEC, whether or not they're the SEC or not. You know, there's this kind of whole thing. You know, and BYU is, you know, they they play football. They play football pretty well. You know, they won national championship from 1984, but they don't focus on football, and they're not super great at self-promoting their sports programs. So I think there's there's enough self-promotion that goes on from the SEC in favor of Alabama or the ACC in favor of Clemson. And I'm not taking anything away from those teams, which are great teams. But I don't think BYU quite has the institutional clout or the established athletic reputation to be able to say, hey, we need to be involved in this conversation. Neither does Cincinnati. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, as a Colorado guy, I think we have a Rocky Mountain chip on our shoulder because this part of the country gets overlooked uh, just a little bit too much. And I'm thinking of sports. I'm thinking about you being a referee for high school basketball, and there isn't any high school basketball. And my gosh, what a terrible thing for all the competitors out there. Right. I mean, the start of the season got pushed back to January, and now it's been pushed back to February. And I'm like, these poor kids, you know, for most of the kids who are trying to play, this is the only time they're going to play in their competitively their entire life. You know, I mean, there's just the numbers are much smaller at a collegiate level. And so all the kids who lost their, you know, state championship games last year and now they're like, okay, well, we're, we were juniors. We can be seniors. We can play our senior year. And now it's getting pushed back and reduced. And I mean, I understand the need to be safe in the time of COVID, but you do feel bad for the poor kids who just want to play. You try to find a silver lining, but there really isn't one. And if you could play even on the collegiate level, then there's going to be a backlog there too. And everything gets distorted. But life is full of ups and downs. And that's kind of the business you're in, Michael Bailey. And I know you had a great year. And that's because you deliver great services. Tell everybody what you can do for them. I know because you are my lawyer. Trish and I feel so much confidence with you as our lawyer. You ask the right questions and you're on top of the law and you let us know if any changes are needed. Tell everybody what you can do for them. So I can help you get prepared for the end of life and what happens to your stuff. And more importantly, I can help you understand how we get from here to there. Because nobody wants to dwell on, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. What do I do with my assets? What do I do with my stuff? We talk about it. But then we say, okay, that's great. That's what's going to happen when you die. But now we want to get from here to there. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Craig, but I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. So we want to go from... I hate to break it to you, but none of us are going to get out of this alive. And probably at some moment, we're going to be told, hey, this don't look great. Sure. And we'll realize that then our life is imminent. And the last thing we want to deal with then is putting our affairs in order. And that's why I feel good. I feel good physically now, thank God. But I feel good knowing that I've done this with Michael Bailey. My wife has. We thought about it. We talked about it. And we had the guidance of a great lawyer. I'll shut up, but I'm grateful for making the decision when I did. Well, and I always talk about how the time to plan for a crisis is before the crisis hits. 
You know, we've seen that with COVID, where suddenly you go to the grocery store and you can't find milk or bread or eggs or, oddly enough, toilet paper. And you're like, what is going on here? But, you know, everybody's freaking out and, oh, my gosh, we need to do this now. Well, when you get diagnosed or when you, if you die suddenly or you get diagnosed with a terrible illness, it may be too late to try to get things done. I mean, I met with a client less than two weeks ago who she has two to four weeks to live. She's been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I, I managed to get her estate plan done from the time that I met her until we got it signed five days later. But that was putting aside a whole bunch of other projects so that I could help her. And I don't always have that option. So you want to plan ahead. And if you plan ahead, then you're not afraid of the future or the unknown. That's wonderful. I mean, I'm getting off or clamped about it because I hadn't thought about the anxiety that goes with that part of your job. You did a mitzvah. Right. That's a blessing for this woman to be available. And my heart and prayers go out to her. And thankfully, you got it done. But it's better to do it ahead of time because ultimately you will die someday. And if you don't have a plan, the government will make a plan for you. Michael Bailey is our lawyer, and I think people can understand why you're a real person, a real family man, an asset to this community, and we sure appreciate you sponsoring our show. Well, I'm glad to be a part of it. Glad to be able to help people who need my help. Yeah, please give out your phone number. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. That's 720-394-6887. If you just Google Michael Bailey, a state lawyer, I'm so proud of my association. So many people have gone to him and have always gotten great feedback. He does the job, doesn't cost very much. It's peace of mind. You have a great lawyer on your side and asset to the community. Merry Christmas, my friend, and Happy New Year. And Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you, Michael Bailey. Go watch It's a Wonderful Life. See your Uncle George again. I will. All right. Take care. Bye now. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Shall old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? It's time for our old lang sign. Thanks for sticking with me. What a ride it has been. We got Joe Biden elected, but the country has big problems. Donald Trump is a big problem, and he's in office way too long. But I'll be back before then. I do hope you will be listening. It's been quite a ride next week. Please enjoy the music of the troubadour and the stories behind the songs. I think it's a special presentation. And when you're chilling and you're quarantining, I hope you have peace. And let's hope that 2021 brings us great things. Thanks for listening this year. Happy New Year. Thank you for listening. 
tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.